0: Good morning, community. <clears throat> my name is Colton, and I have the uh, honor of reading our scripture passage today. It's going to be Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And I would ask for an extra measure of grace from you this morning, um, as there are a lot of uh, foreign names to me in this passage that I'm going to do my best to pronounce, but I'm by no means going to do them justice. So if you would bear with me this morning, I will do my best. Uh, so Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and their, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed to Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. there he spent three months and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. sopatar the Berean the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians Tychicus and Trophimus, these went out ahead and were waiting for us at Traos. But we sailed away from Philippi of the days after the days of the unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down to the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, so that he had, for, so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he had met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And the sailing from there, we came the following day opposite of Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This is God's word.
1: Thank you for giving it the, your best, Colton. That was a challenge. Well, in this passage, Paul preaches a long sermon... And a kid falls out of a window and dies. So right out of the gate, I'm just going to tell you that clearly the point of the passage is to stay awake during sermons. Um, Some of you, however, might suggest that as those who listen to sermons, perhaps the point of the passage is not to preach long sermons. Like, which is it? Maybe it's both. A few years ago, there was a book on preaching published. I think we have a picture of it uh, to put up on the screen. Um... It's called Saving Eutychus, How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake. It's a pretty epic cover. There's a window and this kind of shadow of a boy falling out of the window. So, obviously the title taken from this passage. So, uh, I will tell you Acts 20 is not necessarily for or against long sermons. Nor does it encourage us to be sleepy or not sleepy during sermons. None of these are the main point. Or I'd even say a point of the passage, but it does, I hope I'm raising now the question, well, well, what is the point then? What is the point of this passage? The main point of the passage is that people and places matter. People and places matter to God. People and places should matter to God's people. People and places should matter to us. That That's the point of this passage, which I hope We'll see here by the end. We have something of a sandwich in this passage. Verses 1 to 6, we read of Paul's strategic and spirit-led travels. And then verses 13 to 16, we read of more about Paul's spirit-led and strategic travels. And then those are the outsides of the passage. But there in the middle, we read of this church service in a city called Troas on a Sabbath where there was preaching, there was breaking of bread, which I'll say is communion. And then there was, of course, this sleepy boy named Eutychus. And so travel plans, sandwiching a church service. So my guess is that we should start here in the middle because that's where your attention is probably the most keyed in. This passage here in the middle is both humorous and serious at the same time. The book of Acts speaks of... Palaces and capital cities and philosophers and temples and governors and Caesars and church leaders and, and apostles who, when they pray, the walls of prisons shake. The book of Acts also tells the story of a sleepy preteen. The Greek implies he was between four to eight, or sorry, eight to fourteen years old. So Paul stays in Troas for seven days, and he's there on the Sabbath day. His final day is the Sabbath day, or I guess Monday is his final, final day is when he leaves. But his last full day there is the first day of the week, Sunday. That's when the early Christians gathered together. So in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was a Saturday, but because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, on a Sunday, Christians... in have historically gathered together on Sundays and in fact Acts chapter 7 if you want to or 20 verse 7 if you just want to look down at it this is the first really explicit statement of this being the pattern gathering together on Sunday so I'll read it begins on the first day of the week Sunday when we were gathered together to break bread like when they were gathered right you, you just, even the way they're saying that, Luke's recording, this was their custom. This is normal Christianity, to gather together weekly on the Lord's Day, which we'll come back to at the end. Because Sunday was a work day, they had to meet after the work day, and their communion service um, involved a full meal, the, the breaking of the bread, as it says here in the passage. So sometimes, like, you know, some small groups, they just have brownies. <laughs> some small groups have a full meal. They had a full meal when they had their communion service. We'll just have little crackers later. But that's what they did. And because Paul's there, this great missionary, they're going to take advantage of that. They're going to go on into the night. And this combination of food plus emotional goodbyes, plus late nights, plus darkness, plus flickering lamps, causes a young boy to become sleepy. And I'm sure, honestly, he was not the only one. I'm sure he was not the only one. We read in verse 8 of this repetition you can see it there in the text it says the phrase he sank into a deeper sleep and then later being overcome with sleep it's the same word phrase in the greek and the point was to say the boy's triumph <laughs> There's no judgment of him really here in the passage. It's a very gracious rendition of it. The guy is trying and he moves over to a window hoping some fresh air would help. If you do any study of this passage, you'll see pretty quickly, because people pointed out pretty quickly, that the name Eutychus means lucky or fortunate. (laughs) So here we have the story of Lucky who gets sleepy and falls out of a window, which I'm sure no one ever made fun of him ever again (laughs) for that name. But God was gracious to answer Paul's prayers for the healing of this boy. Now, the prayers are not recorded by Luke, but we, I think, can assume they were prayed. We are told that the boy died. Now, remember, Luke, who's recording this for us, is a physician. Um, Colossians 4.14 says that Luke is a physician turned historian. And Luke wouldn't have written that someone had died who hadn't died. Luke, like all physicians, are familiar with death. And Paul rushes down the stairs, leans over the boy, takes him up in his arms, we presume prayed over him, looks up and says, he's alive! His breath, it's in him! God did a miracle in their midst. These were the sorts of miracles that God was doing to to validate the expansion of of the gospel there among them across the Roman Empire. God was gracious. Not only to the boy and his family in this church. But I'll say also gracious to Paul. Reading over this caused me to just reflect on. What would have happened if I if, had if been there preaching. And if God had not done a miracle. How that would have scarred me as a pastor. I think of young Charles Spurgeon. October 19th, 1856. So here in America, you know, a handful of years before the Civil War era. But over in England, young Charles Spurgeon, he's 22 years old at the time, preaching in London to a crowd of 10,000 people. He would go on to become the most famous preacher in the world. But here, already as a 22-year-old, you can see he's already quite famous. And someone in the balcony yells, Fire! Even though there's no fire. The story would take us off if I would go into that. But a stampede results in seven people die. There's no resurrections. I'm sure, there were prayers. Spurgeon is newly married. He's just become a dad of twin boys. Some 25 years later, as he's preaching, there's this moment where something triggers a thought back to that moment, and he's unable to speak for several minutes. See, God, God was gracious here to this boy, this family, this church, and Paul. The story is both humorous and very serious. And after everyone knows the boy's okay, they go back upstairs, and then we read in verse 11, when Paul had gone back up, they and had broken bread and eaten. So apparently they never got to communion. They were going to do it, but he just preaches too long. It says, and he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And so his long sermon apparently now got even longer. They had never gotten around to communion, but then they get around to sharing in the Lord's Supper. And apparently this miracle gives them a second wind and they go on till daybreak. Now, so what, what's going on? What's this passage about? Well, a few weeks ago, I gave you this metaphor for for when you preach and when you read long passages. It's it's sort of like when you're driving on the highway at speed. You really, I mean, you can only pay attention to the most important things. The cars around you, the signs, um, the road that's in front of you. I want to give you another metaphor that I think will be helpful for the book of Acts and then maybe even especially for this week. Going through the book of Acts the way we've been going through it is like going on an elevator up a 50-story building, one floor at a time. When we come to May 23rd and we finish our last sermon in the book of Acts, it will be not quite but almost 50 sermons through the book over two years in and out of the book. And each week it's like we're, we're looking at the, what goes on in that elevator on that passage between that floor. And each week some characters come on Words are spoken, actions happen. Some characters get off, some stay on. Some get off on one floor and they don't come back in. Some um, get off and they come back in on another floor. That's more or less what it's been like through the book of Acts. And our goal as preaching pastors here at the church has been to focus our attention on what's happening on that floor or between those floors in the book of Acts each week. I think that's the right place to place our focus but, what if nearly every week there was background music playing? By definition, background music is in the background, so it's in the background, right? It doesn't occupy our attention. It's in the background. But what if each week a very similar tune was playing and that background music in elevators? Some characters get on, some get off, but each week... There's a single refrain over and over and again in the background. Then it feels like, if that's the case, there should be some week in the course of this time we spend on the elevator that we should highlight what's happening in the background. In fact, even Paul's travel patterns at the beginning of this passage and the end of this passage, I would say, sing harmony with that background music, which is this. People and places matter. People and places matter in the book of Acts. They matter in the book of Acts because they matter to God. And thus they should matter to God's people. They should matter to us. Rootless religion withers. Without roots and without groundedness and without soil and without people and without place, Christianity withers. In fact, Luke mentions, I wanted to come up with the exact statistic, I don't have it. A hundred, I'll say, people, a hundred places throughout the book. Luke reminds us that to be rootless, to be peopleless, to be placeless is actually not to be participating in Christianity. Jesus, after all, was Jesus of Nazareth. He had a place. He had a people. Christianity, when rightly practiced, is rooted not only in God, in his word, and in the gospel, but in a particular people, in a particular place. In other words, the idea of an individual relationship with God That is disconnected from a local church and from a people of a local church would have been crazy to the early church. And it should be crazy to us. In light of this, all these travel plans here from the Apostle Paul don't seem that out of place. Paul goes to this city and meets with these people. And then he goes to that city and meets with these other people. And all the while, he's trying to get back to Jerusalem. Remember Acts chapter 19, verse 21? It's the course for the rest of the book. I'm going to Jerusalem, then I'm going to go back to Rome. He's got this plan. But even here in this path to Jerusalem, he's not going in the most efficient route. He's making a circuitous route through Macedonia to see people he's seen before and to see people he's not seen yet but know of him. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. I want to read these again. You'll notice the repetition of a word. Verse 1. After the uproar, that is the uproar from last week in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, sent for people. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. It's a region. And when he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. The word encouragement is used twice in these verses. Encouragement requires other people. That word Greece uh, is, is the place where Corinth was. Paul had a rocky relationship with the church in Corinth. He had a rocky relationship with the church in Corinth because the church in Corinth had a rocky relationship with the Lord. But Paul spent time there. He made time for them. Another interesting detail is that as we piece together the timelines from the book of Acts and the other letters that Paul wrote, it's during this stay in Corinth that he writes this letter we call Romans, here in Acts 20, verse 2, which is wild. Here he is rolling up his sleeves with this Corinthian church, and he's writing to this church over in Rome, pastoring them, people, in a place. I'll read verse 4 again. I'll do my best as well, Colton. <laughs> Sopater, the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, I think, and Secundus, or Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. More people. More places. And now, this isn't said explicitly here in Acts 20, verse 4. But again, piecing together... Um, the information we have from the other of the letters that the Apostle Paul, something really beautiful is going on here that's not said explicitly in Acts. So many years before this, the Apostle Paul, when he was commissioned by the leaders in the early church to go out and be a missionary to the Gentiles and the, 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 the Jewish people, okay, Paul, go out, be that missionary that you, God has called you to be. One of the things they said is make sure you just remember the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I want to do. And we know from the other letters that here in these very verses in Acts that we're reading from chapter 20, as he's going around to these areas, Macedonia and Greece and Corinth and so on, he's taking up an offering that he's going to then bring to the Christians in Jerusalem. Why does that matter? It's interesting because as he's going through these largely Gentile areas and taking up an offering, he's not only collecting money, he's collecting people. So that when he goes to Jerusalem, it's not just a bag of money he brings to these largely Jewish Christians now, or Jewish people now turned Christians from these largely Gentile regions. He's making this show of unity that not only with our money, with our people, we're here with you. It'd be like me going to Living Water and grabbing Mike or up to um, Grace Bible Church and grabbing Josh and Steve or... or Matt over at Susquehanna Valley Free Church, and then we go over to the West Shore for a meeting, or Harrisburg in the city. Like, we bring all these pastors together, and we say, okay, we're here with you. So again, the background music of the book of Acts, it just keeps singing over and over again that people and places matter. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, and from heaven, he is building not simply individual Christians who worship him, but people who worship him in the context of local churches. Like the church in Troas, so many years ago, and like our local church here, people and places mattering in Troas, and in Harrisburg. So, since we're talking about Harrisburg, I'm just going to spend most of the rest of our time talking about us. I want to use this time here, this, these passages here in the book of Acts, to stir what I think is stirring among at least me and other leaders here at our church. In almost every meeting I'm having here over January... With leaders at our church, whether it be our pastor elders when we gather every other Wednesday night for several hours. Whether we gather as a staff. On last Saturday we gathered as small group leaders for a training for all the small group leaders here at our church. I keep coming back to one idea and I want to bring it up here on Sunday morning for all of us. There are many things that encourage me about our church. Many things that encourage me. There's a few things that worry me. I'm worried about those who are missing from fellowship. As the lead pastor of our church, I'm telling us that one of the most important things we can do over the next three months is join together in a search and rescue mission for lost sheep and lost coins. I have this image in my mind of a long rowboat. It's one of those skinny rowboats that that has those long oars. And you you see people rowing in sync together. Water is like glass. They call it crew. I'm in the boat with you. And over the next three months, I could train hard. I could lose weight. I could take supplements. I could build my fitness. I could become a better rower over the next three months. Which, perhaps in the next three months, I could become a 15% better rower. There's a lot of athletic improvement to make over just three, four months. And all of you could do the same. But I want you to picture this rowboat, not, not of just four people or eight people, but like a long centipede, like a long, longer rowboat than could ever exist. It holds several hundred people. Now, if we wanted to become a better rowing team, Between now and May, again, all of us could train harder. But here's the deal. We are missing rowers. There are a lot of open spaces. And more important than me becoming a better preacher, or developing the perfect system for children's ministry, or the perfect system for small groups, or fine-tuning our worship set, or tweaking our website or making better Facebook posts or better videos and so on and so on. More important than all of that, more important than all of us getting 15% better, whatever that might mean. What we need to do instead is go get missing rowers. You and me pulling harder isn't going to help if we're missing 200 people. And here I am saying this on a day we're getting four inches. (laughs) And I'm looking at the camera now. Half of you are watching because it's snowing four inches. I'm not talking to you. I'm not saying everyone who's missing from church is sinful and lazy. I'm not saying everybody missing from church is sinful and lazy. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if the world starts to go back normal-ish, Not tomorrow, but by July or October. And people missing from our church don't return to the regular gathering. That's a deadly pattern. I really believe there are people missing, not out there from the broader church only, but right here from among us. I know their names. I know their faces. I know their children. They're in my cell phone. I really believe that there are people who call this church home, who feel themselves to be Christians today, but if they don't return to the regular gathering with God's people this year, they won't be a Christian in 10 years. My word choice, I'm being very intentional. They feel themselves to be Christians today, but might not be in 10 years. This is a critical time for our church. To say it more positively, lost sheep who return to church might change the course of their family tree for the better, leaving a legacy of faithfulness to the coming generations because they chose to follow the Lord today. Again, there are many legitimate reasons to not be at church, but there are also so many not so great reasons. And I'm worried. Some of you will know the name Alistair Begg, the pastor Alister Begg. He's sort of famous and a faithful pastor. He has a Scottish accent, so sometimes that helps if you know, oh, the Scottish one. Um, he pastors a church called Parkside in Ohio. He's well known for his radio preaching, his conferences, speaking books. I like him quite a bit. The ministry that promotes his preaching and teaching outside of his local church is called Truth for Life. That's That's maybe where you've, seen or heard him before and recently truth for life announced that starting in february truth for life is going to discontinue playing his sermons on their website instead they're just going to only leave them at parkside church and that for 24 hours if i read all the details correctly And the reason his side ministry is going to stop playing his sermons is because during the pandemic, too many people are watching his church services. He fears not as a supplemental participation into the local church, but as a way of avoiding the particular people and places God has called them. In other words, COVID has been so good for his side ministry that he's actually worried that he's detracting from local churches, so he's going to make his ministry less available. I want to close by reading a letter that Pastor Begg wrote to um, the subscribers of Truth for Life this week. It came out Tuesday morning. This is just a few of the paragraphs from that letter. Maybe a few of you received it. I don't know. The reasons for our decision lies in the growing number of listeners who, by their testimony, are growing quite comfortable with the digital experience. Life has dramatically changed during this last year, and the changes that initially felt temporary are beginning to become settled patterns. A year ago, most of us thought that Zooming was something that happened in an open-top car. I don't know if that's a Scottish phrase. We would call it a convertible. Um, now our family rooms have been become venues for our virtual church experiences. Let me hasten, he says. And I want to just underscore this in my words, could be in bold. Let me hasten to say that we recognize the difference between convenience and the necessary and valuable benefit of online church for those who are housebound, either temporarily or on a long-term basis. He writes, it is a privilege to stream the service and to be welcome into your homes. I feel that as a privilege. Continuing, my concern is with those who are forsaking their local gathering for the comfortable option of the spiritual equivalent of DoorDash and Uber Eats. These unusual days provide us with an opportunity to examine what we understand and believe about the local church. The English word church translates the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out together. Sometimes, he writes in our communion service, we remind ourselves of the wonder of having been given new life in Jesus and having been made members of God's family. None of our natural families, he writes, are perfect, but they are where we belong and where we should want to be. Zoom calls with my son, daughter-in-law, and new grandson are fine, but a poor substitute for being in each other's company. We should feel the same about our church families. Final paragraph I'll read of his. We have yet to see what things will look like when everything returns to normal. Will there be a resurgence of commitment to the gathering of God's people? Or will the COVID habits have taken hold? moms and dads and i would add and pastors must take the lead in seeing that their children are learning the importance of our gatherings by resisting the temptation to drift into a settled pattern of individualized religion and near the close of the letter of beg this letter was actually longer than what i read he quotes hebrews 10:24 and 25 which read and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, the day being the day of the Lord's return drawing near. Notice the phrase, let us. It's not only the job of the lead pastor and the staff or the pastor elders of the church to reach out to everyone. I want to set an example in doing that. But the job is too big for one person or one team. We need each other. Sometimes a knock on my preaching might be it's not practical enough. Let me just be very, very practical. Be thinking, who could you reach out to? Who can you contact? Who can you help? Who are you wondering about? Can you get your small group together and brainstorm about these people? How can you make a phone call? How can you invite them out for coffee and lunch? How can you listen to their concerns? Don't assume you know why they're missing. It's been really helpful to me lately. Don't assume you know why people are missing. But ask. They probably would want to be asked. You would want to be asked. When Eutychius, excuse me, Eutychius, different pronunciations. When Eutychus fell from the window, Paul didn't say, please turn with me to the next page. (laughs) Right? He didn't do that. He stopped what he was doing because something wild and tragic had happened. And I want to encourage us right now that something wild and tragic has happened. And we need to check on people and pray for them. They might be okay, they might not. You might be okay, you might not. Let us help one another. This passage says that they celebrated communion together, the Lord's Supper. In the passage they use the word breaking of bread and, and we have the privilege of doing that as well this morning. We don't have a meal. We have juice and crackers. I'm going to pray in just a moment, invite the worship team back up. But in communion, what we celebrate is that when something tragic happened, Jesus went on a rescue mission for lost sheep, And lost coins. He went on a rescue mission for you and I. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, as I read the scriptures, even in the passages that feel obscure and strange and foreign to us, both in people and place, I think when we, if we could lay our ears down on Acts 20, we'd hear your heartbeat for people and places. Lord, I pray that we'd feel that warmth this morning, even as we celebrate in communion together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.